Our lives are not our own. We are bound to others, past and present. And by each crime and every kindness, we birth our future. Hello, I'm Douglas Bowles, and this is 42 Minutes, a production of SyncBook Radio and thesyncbook.com, a weekly conversation with the interesting artists and thinkers of our day. This morning, on this third day of December, as we near the darkest days of the year, when all hope seems to be lost, and as we enter aisle 13 of the podcast, episode number 113, we shall again consider those animating sins of the fathers and why they haunt us. Even in our brightest moments, the dance macabre plays on, for the dead are not dead, nor are they gone. A vast company of ancestral presences embrace us in dance always. In sundry forms and fashions, they are always present, and their gestural images move through our limbs and our choices. And here we thought we were on this journey alone. The past is not gone. It is not even past. And it is the task of this moment to discern how these worlds meet and infiltrate each other. That, by paying conscious homage to the thread of multi-generational voices which run through us and haunt us, is to light a candle in the darkness of being. Good morning. Will Morgan here, and today, as we move towards our darkest days, we shall get on the couch and discuss the things that haunt us with author, educator, and Jungian antelist, Dr. James Hollis. How are you, sir? Fine. Thank you very much. Happy to be with you. Great. Can you tell us about your dream? I mentioned at the beginning of the book that um, I had written a number of books and uh, have a full practice and I travel a lot, so I'm getting on in years, and I really wanted to um, to take, ti- take time off for a while and, and relax, but I kept getting haunted, if I may use that metaphor, hmm. by uh, intimations and nudges from the unconscious, including uh, some dreams. And in one of the dreams, um, I found myself strangely in charge of uh, the body of uh, General Grant, the departed, um, you know, 18th president. And uh, while I had no personal associations with him in my life, uh, there were a number of uh, childhood references that somehow connected me to General Grant. And uh, why I was given this assignment in the uh, unconscious, I had no idea, but I suddenly realized that every time I looked at the body, it had moved somewhat, and I, and I began to realize that it was, um, uh, it was in fact alive. And I leaned down into his face, and I said, are, are you still alive? And he, he says, yes, in a very uh, irritated way, and I realized he was, he was angry at me. And, and suddenly I, I realized I have to tell the world about this. And uh, so strangely enough, I dialed the pharmacy to announce this to the world in the strange logic of dreams. And uh, they kept inexplicably shifting me to the PENS department, P-E-N-S, the PENS department. And I kept saying, but, but I have to tell you that the general's still alive and I have to report this. And they kept switching me to the PENS department. And, and the dream ended uh, with that. And, and I thought, well, it's a... Certainly an amusing dream and a peculiar dream, but then when I began to reflect on its implications for me, uh, I began to realize, well, what would one do with pens? Well, one writes, of course. And so it was one of the many promptings from the unconscious that said, you know, get back in the saddle. Uh, there, there are things here you still need to uh, address. And I began to reflect on the obvious fact that uh, as a psychoanalyst, every hour I spend is in some way uh, well, anchored in the present, to be sure, it is uh, informed by, moved by, uh, sometimes blocked by um, energies from the past. 
And as a result of that, um, I, I had to recover the wisdom of uh, novelist Faulkner's observation that the past isn't dead, it's not even past. It's interesting. The whole time that I'm reading this book, I keep thinking uh, that it's analogous to Hamlet, the whole idea. Do you, can you see that correlation, or am I you know, jumping the gun? Well, please, please explain it to me. I'm sure there is one, but go ahead. Well, he's, he's haunted from the, his father. Oh, yes. Yeah. Yes, of course, of course, yes. And, and interestingly enough, uh, the, the, the story of Hamlet, which is uh, Shakespeare's longest play, is about a man who is, is haunted by unfinished business, by a task. And his culture approves that task, namely to revenge the murder of his father. And, and yet, for reasons he can't explain, um, he's, he's unable to do that task until the very end of the play. And, uh, and in fact, at one point, Hamlet says, resolution gets sicklied over with the pale cast of thought and lose the name of action, which is a, a perfect description uh, to use modern terminology, of how a complex, uh, which is always driven by the past, uh, suddenly imposes itself upon our intentions or our ego consciousness and sends us off into agenda, an agenda that uh, is quite contrary to what we had wished. Well, that's fascinating in the, in the sense that, so you're the author of, thir this is your 13th book, this book, uh, Hauntings, Dispelling the Ghosts Who Run Our Lives. You stayed in the opening that you thought you were done, that you had made a yep. a, a good career as both you know a, a Jungian analyst and an author and an educator, and mm -hmm. but this dream compelled you to write another book. Well, yes. In other words, um, there's always unfinished business in us, and uh, the last chapter of the book is suggesting that the biggest haunting that we all have is that of the unlived life, that, that larger psychic space that we could move into, you know, stepping into our own greater capacities. And sometimes we're impeded by the ministries of fate, sometimes by our own choices. Uh, sometimes, frankly, we are betrayed by our own choices. And, and so it was clear to me that after a while, and it wasn't just that dream, I, I would wake up with whole paragraphs forming in my head, that uh, it, it was clear that there was still uh, something in me that was wishing to enter the world through me, and, and it was to take the form of, of this book, which took a couple of years to write, uh, squeezed uh, in between uh, other work assignments, and um, it, it finally uh, produced itself. So I'm not going to be in the position ever again of saying, well, I'm finished with that now, because the psyche might have another um, uh, intention for me. This is a, a book about spirits and specters and things, but they're they're not literal ghosts in the sense that we think of. Not necessarily, no. We we have um, a long history of uh, our ancestors uh, talking about uh, spiritual phenomena that um, came to them, including ancestral haunting and so forth, and. Um, I think the one thing we can say that is absolutely true is that the past is never fully gone. It, it remains within us. And, of course, uh, two of the largest presences in our lives are those of our parents. And even for the child who's an orphan, that, that psychic lacuna or, or emptiness, that space there, is often filled, filled with expectations, curiosities, uh, um, and, and uh, all kinds of projections. 
And so um, we are in many ways always living in a haunted house and sleeping in memories unmade bed. And what that really means is is that the messages of the past that uh, we internalize, whether supportive or uh, interruptive, uh, remain unchallenged, especially as they remain unconscious, because it's the unconscious uh, energies and messages that play the greatest role in our lives, because they're, they're, so to speak, eating our lunch and we don't even realize it. And on the other hand, um, it's true when we make some of these um, messages uh, conscious from the past, we realize that consciousness alone doesn't get rid of them. In, in fact, they, they will always be there to some degree. That's why Jung said we, we can't solve these problems, but we can outgrow them, and, and there's a difference there. We can become large enough to contain our self-doubt or overcome some of the prohibitions that have uh, blocked our development uh, through these decades. I really like the attention that you give to um, things like dreams and then as, as if they're a message from from the past or, or and, and also, the way that you speak of synchronicity seems to fall into the same category. Would you agree with that? Sure. First of all, um, we, we have to recognize the fact that sleep research has um, demonstrated that we average five or six dreams per night, all of us. And the average listener will say, well, I, I don't dream or I don't remember my dreams or I only remember, remember them rarely. But the truth is a lot of activities going on there. And there's been a lot of speculation through history as to whether they might have any meaning. I think it's pretty clear that nature does not waste energy, and it, it serves a purpose to the organism, whether we pay attention or not. And if we start paying attention, we begin to realize there are certain recurrent themes and motifs, and the incredible ingenuity of the unconscious cannot be overemphasized because it produces uh, synthetic narratives that are, are far beyond, in many cases, our, our conscious capacity to create. And so we have to acknowledge that there is some other kind of center within us, apart from ego consciousness, that there's some sort of uh, native wisdom, if you will, that is um, uh, forming its own opinions, it's observant, and apparently trying to communicate with us. And it would only make sense to pay attention because uh, any time I, I neglect that kind of conversation, I'm literally sort of uh, reinforcing the split of the worlds within me. And uh, when we begin to think about dreams, we, we realize that over time, there's something in there that is uh, offering a commentary, if you will, on our lives. Uh, Jung said it's the equivalent of having a two-million-year-old person inside of us. And it would make sense if, if right. we could sort of access that uh, archaic wisdom that um, uh, we, we should pay attention and that maybe we have something to learn from that. On that note, what is, what is a Jungian analyst and, and what do they do? Well, um, a Jungian analyst is a person who has been, been trained at one of the Jung institutes around the world. I was uh, trained at the sort of mothership, as it were, in uh, Zurich, Switzerland, um, about uh, 35 years ago. And, um, you know, we, we try to work in a psychodynamic way, that is to say, to engage in a conversation with the unconscious and, and with the whole person. Now, the, the problem with the unconscious, of course, is it's unconscious. So we, we have to try to read symptoms rather than suppress them and to say, why have they come? What are they uh, attempting to say? 
um, how is it that they're uh, asking something of me? Uh, we, we pay attention to um, energy systems within the body. Uh, we can force ourselves to do certain things out of necessity for a certain length of time, but uh, over, over uh, um, the course of one's lifetime, if one is always pushing at the grain, it will show up as burnout or substance abuse or depression or, or something of that sort. So we have to pay attention to the energy systems within us. We have to pay attention to the feeling function. We, we don't choose feelings. Feelings are autonomous, uh, qualitative responses of the psyche to how things are going. And we, we have to uh, pay attention and, and maybe not be captive to those feelings, but at least acknowledge them for what they are. And, of course, uh, dreams like symptoms, too, are phenomena that are created wholly outside the sphere of uh, conscious control. So again, we'd have to respect that something in our own nature is either in revolt or it's in support or it's uh, seeking a corrective of some kind. And so the uh, in- engagement with the unconscious is really a way of having a more informed conversation with one's deepest uh, uh, psychological reality and and trying to engage in a dialogue that I think leads to the development of a greater uh, sense of personal authority and a, and a greater sense of uh, depth and dignity in, in the conduct of one's journey. We recently spoke to Dick Russell, who wrote The Life and Ideas of James Hillman, and you, another Jungian analyst, of course, mm-hmm. whose idea of the daemon I wonder if you're familiar with. Yes, I, I am, and I knew James Hillman very well. In fact, he was an instructor of mine uh, four decades ago in Zurich. Wow. Could you speak to one of the things that, one of the little tidbits that we learned is that uh, I think he said that we choose our parents, that there's this, (laughs) so it it gets into the kind of the, oh, I don't even know, you say woo-woo area, but (laughs) it it really... He would agree. We would correct word. Yeah. You well, end up I, I, having no victimization if you claim ownership of your own choice yeah. of birth. Sure, sure. Well, I, I, I think he was speaking more metaphorically than literally, and I think you touched on the right issue there. That um, it's it's not a question of what we would choose. It's a question of what we get and how we stand in relationship to it. In other words, I I would not agree that we we choose our parents in any literal way, and I I don't think uh, James Hillman quite felt that way either, although I I can't speak for him. Um, I think what he's really getting at is whatever the playing field that uh, we are placed upon, we have to play that game, and we have to decide how it is we're going to conduct ourselves with courage and dignity and, and seek the fullest realization of our possibilities in the context of what is possible. And, and that's, that's an ancient story of the conflict between fate and destiny and the individual being caught right in the middle. And, and the individual is, in the end, somehow judged for how he or she um, you know, in, in, enabled or played the game. And um, that involves personal character. It involves our capacity for self-criticism versus self-inflation. And it involves our recognition of many of the distorting messages that we acquire along the way that uh, can lead us down a, a different path. I often ask myself the question, 
what would I have been without these influences? Or what would this person's journey have been without those influences? Well, it's an interesting speculation, but the point is you still have to conduct your life in the presence of, of the, the current realities. And more importantly, to sort of discern what is the voice that is within each of us that is seeking its fuller expression in the world? Because a question we don't often ask ourselves is what wants to enter the world through me? Now, what that means is not necessarily what will make me comfortable in life, uh, what will make <laughs> me uh, fit in with people. And, and, that, and a good example was, was this book, which, as I said, I, I was tired of writing because I have to write at the end of a long work day. And, and it was insistent, like a baby, saying, look, I'm, I'm waiting, and we're, we're going to get to arrive whether you're ready or not. And uh, so in, in the end, the, the real question of everyone's life is, is what values are really worth your submission? What values are really worth your sacrifice? What values are really, in the long run, going to be worthy of the soul? And uh, I think in the first half of life, we can hardly even get to that question. We're just trying to uh, separate from our own parents and step into the world and form relationship and career and earn a living and perhaps become a parent and a citizen and so forth. But in the second half of life, we really have to ask the question, well, so what is this journey really about? Is it, is it only serving these uh, socioeconomic functions? Um, as important as they might be, uh, if if it isn't that, what what, what else is it? And, and I think that's at the beginning of one's uh, possible recovery of personal authority. Uh, and by personal authority, I mean to sort through the extraordinary um, level of traffic that we all have inside of ourselves and to say which voices there are coming from my own depths and, and which are the ones that are you know, acquired from family of origin or popular culture and, and, and so forth, and to be over time able to discern uh, the difference between them and then find the courage to um, live them in the world. And if we do, then I think we'll experience our, our journey as meaningful. And if we flee that, uh, no amount of distraction or affluence or addiction will ever quite cover, I think, the inner pathos and suffering that 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 produces. Speaking of fate and destiny and recovering personal authority, you offer a reading of the book of Job in, in Hauntings. Could you, yeah. could you, uh, it, which is interesting because the book of Job confounds a lot of people. Could you sure, speak to sure. that a little bit? Sure. It's interesting that the uh, book of Job was not originally a Hebraic story. Uh, it was an ancient Near Eastern story of a just person who had a lot of apparent uh, uh, injustice foisted upon him, the loss of his family, his crops, and his physical health, and so forth. And it was picked up by an unknown Hebrew poet who, who wrote it, uh, I believe, as a critique of his uh, people's uh, concepts at the time. And the basic concept was, and it's a concept most of us have, frankly, is that, you know, if, if we do the right thing, we'll have a contract with the universe. In other words, if I behave correctly, then the universe is going to behave correctly towards me. Or put it in more literal terms, if I'm good, God will be good back to me. Well, the, the truth is, it's much more complicated than that, and one can't presume that that kind of quid pro quo uh, exists. And so what, what Job does is... 
he he tries to be a good person and and when this woe arrives uh, he is of course confounded and and upset and and angry and and puzzled and so forth and the comforters so-called comforters who come to his uh, side are in fact no comfort at all they they basically say job look we ha- we have an understanding we have a deal we have a con- contract we have a covenant and since you are obviously being punished or apparently being punished it's because you've done something wrong and and job searches his conscience and can't find anything and finally uh, ironically he even calls on god as his chief witness to say, uh, I ask you to testify that I've done nothing wrong. I've served the contract as best I can. And and when I was young and I first read the book of Job, I was really offended because I thought, you know, the, the God image that's depicted here at the end of the work is kind of that of a big cosmic bully who simply says, I have more power than you, Job, and sit down and shut up, so to speak. And I was very deeply offended by that. Uh, in later years, I began to realize that what what the voice of divinity says to Job is that look, there there is no contract. You know, there is a human plane of understanding, and then there's a plane of reality that's transcendent to that. There's some, something always beyond our our poor capacity to comprehend. And in in that field, the ordinary concepts of good and evil are are not uh, are not that clear. And that um, the the presumed contract is unintentionally uh, hubristic or or acts of arrogance. You know, humans don't make deals with the universe. Humans don't strike contracts. And so it's it's less a, a critique of of uh, Job than it is the the notion of that he inherited from his people uh, of of the presumed contract. And I think many of us have the experience of uh, arriving at some point in life, and then life really, really hits us hard. Uh, great losses, or, or, or sadness, or, or whatever, and and we say, but look, I, I meant well, and I did the best I could. And the truth is that whatever life is, it operates in its own autonomous ways, and and we have to be able to um, grow from that psychologically, and to say in every one of those situations. Um, you know, the task here is for me to grow up, to accept this, to move on, and learn what I need to learn from it, and to maintain my journey as, as best I can. And Job says at the end, uh, I heard of thee with mine ear, but now I see a thee with my eye, which is, is really a metaphor for saying, you know, I, I had a received tradition of piety, and I behaved as well as I could, but I've moved from that received tradition to an encounter with the living mystery of the universe. And, and, and no faithful Jew would ever imagine seeing God directly. That would be blasphemous. So he's speaking there, I think, of moving from a kind of learned tradition that was being critiqued to an existential encounter with the radical uh, mystery of the other and, and realizing that he had to really reframe his whole sense of the universe, and for that reason, his his per- personal theology as well. And so, in in the end, he is he is blessed. Uh, not not that one just automatically replaces a lost family and lost herds and 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 so forth, but rather that he's he's moved psychologically and he's moved theologically, in into a a different kind of understanding of himself 
swimming in the mysteries that uh, run through this world. And on a, on a personal basis, I, as I said, I, I deal with that frequently with individuals who've suffered a, you know, a, a painful divorce or the loss of a child or, or a, a downsizing at work or, or something that's overthrown their world and their understanding of self and other. And, and to feel like a victim is quite understandable, but to remain in a state of victimage is in time to collude with, with the damage, collude with the wound, rather than saying, what is it that I need to learn and how do I need to grow and how do I need to somehow enlarge psychologically to, to move through this. And, and from that, you see, we, we move really from the possibilities of the kind of miserable states of life to, to meaningful states of life. Now, you notice here I don't use the word happiness very often, <laughs> if at all, and this is not about happiness. Uh, happiness is a very transient state of being, and it, it, it comes to us when we're in right relationship to our own nature at any given moment. But again, it's transient and fleeting, and uh, rather I would say the real task is meaning. Are, are we living in a way that we experience as meaningful? Um, and, and which uh, gives us a sense of, of genuine reciprocity that when you invest in something, it, it returns to you as a sense of purpose and uh, productivity and, and a sense of, of meaning. And when you have that, um, then you're living in right relationship to your life, even if it's a, a difficult and, and stony path that one has to walk. You, well, you have given me some personal sinks. I keep having to deal with the I Ching lately. I was, I was wondering if you may speak to the I Ching and your experience and what you think it is and your philosophy mm -hmm, about it and mm -hmm. so forth. The subject of the I Ching, is a, which means the Chinese Book of Changes, and, and it's, it's over 3,000 years old. And it's, um, uh, from the Western standpoint, a very puzzling uh, text and a puzzling concept. Um, but we have to say, in, in the West, we focused on the exteriority of the material world. So we prevailed historically on, uh, in, in such areas as physics and chemistry and, and math and, and so forth, the, what we call the natural sciences. Uh, in, in the Eastern tradition, there was a much greater interest in the interiority of the moment. In other words, we, we know what this date is, but, but what does it mean to be in this moment, in this time, in this place, psychologically or, or spiritually? And so they've developed through the years, and other traditions have as well, means of trying to access the interiority of the moment. So, for example, in, in the Western world, if two cars collide at an intersection, we immediately say, well, who failed to yield, who was liable there, and whose insurance company pays, or, or whatever the procedure may be. Who made the mistake? In other words, we, we say, what are the outer causal factors? If we begin to look at the inner causal factors, we have to say, what is it that brought me to this moment in my life? What, what does it mean to me? Uh, how does it open an aperture into the consideration again, of, of that mystery that we, we call this, this journey. And, and in the Eastern tradition, the I Ching is, is a mode of casting lots, coins, yarrow sticks, various methods, to try to access um, the Tao, that it's the TAO, not the Tao Jones, it's the TAO, the Tao of the moment, yeah, just, just as dreams do. In other words, I might be sailing along consciously in my life, 
And then my dream image is quite contrary to that. And I have to say, no, wait a minute, there's a discrepancy here. And, and with a dream, what you're really getting at is, is the interiority of the moment. We could be so caught up in the outer world that we ignore what's going on in the inner world. And so um, the I Ching consists of, of 64 uh, images. And these images range from the masculine to the feminine to, to light and dark to the passive to active and so forth. And, and 64 is simply a number that represents on a finite scale the infinite realm of possibilities in any given moment. And through the changing lines of the ideogram, which has um, six lines, uh, if you see all of the combinations of those six lines, it equals 64 possible ideograms. And, and so what one does is seeks to, in, to engage in a meditative state, to enter into a state of reflectivity and, and sort of as much non-thinking as possible, but to be passive and open to the moment. And then to, to cast the, um, uh, the, the coins or whatever form one's using to access an image. And with those images, uh, readings or texts or meditations have uh, developed over the millennia, uh, going back at least 3,000 years, sometimes attributed to famous people like Confucius and the Duke of Chow and others. And, and these are not meant to be literal meanings, but it's saying essentially um, of what might I be mindful here. Now, now people in the Western Judeo-Christian tradition uh, did that sometimes in the past by um, entering into a meditative state and opening the Bible and see what verse came up. Now, again, to the Western mind, and I certainly have a Western-trained mind, we would say, oh, but that's coincidental or, or that's just arbitrary. And maybe it is. On the other hand, one can't go wrong if one says simply, uh, let me take this, this issue, this perspective, this way of seeing things into account. Um, and in other words, we put it in terms of, of what should I be mindful today in the conduct of my business and maybe the image that comes up says, rather than be so defensive and so resistant, sometimes it's better like the reed to bend with the wind. And maybe what that's really saying is not get stuck in a rigid position, but to be a little flexible. And that might be very useful in the conduct of my day. So one, one should not see it as um, trying to foretell the future. It, one should not see it as divination and telling you what to do with your life. It's simply saying... Um, be mindful that in the qualitative dimension of this moment, uh, these values need to be uh, honored. And if, if they're not, um, maybe some bad choices will be made. Again, we've prevailed in the Western world with the quantitative um, measuring of time and space, but the uh, qualitative nature of time and space is, is something that the Eastern world attempted to access and for that reason their world was less that of physics than it was of depth psychology. Well could you explain there's a couple Jungian concepts that would benefit us to understand a little better but projection and transference? Sure sure a projection is an unconscious mechanism we don't wake in the morning and say I'm gonna have a projection today but the moment I step into life on a daily basis my, my psyche is active, and it gets stimulated by various things. And so energies leave me and enter the world. I don't know that that's happened, but I begin to experience the exterior world 
in terms of the contents, expectations, or lens, if you will, uh, which I projected upon it. And there are really five stages to projections. First of all, it happens, and, and it's unconscious. I literally don't know I'm in a projective state. Uh, we do this with human relationships, for example. So when people fall in love, you know, the other person's really a total stranger, but we believe we know them in some way or we're attracted to them in some way. And, and so we start relating to them in that way, and we're really relating to aspects of our own unconscious rather than the reality, though we don't know that at the moment. The second stage is where the person um, begins, because they are real or the situation is real, it begins to wear through that projection. We experience a kind of cognitive dissonance or disturbance. It's like, well, this is not quite lined up the way I thought it was, or you're not exactly behaving as I expected from you, and what's that about? And, and so we experience a little disorientation or confusion. And the third stage is often the effort to renew the projection, to put more effort into it, uh, and sometimes in relationships it leads to power issues between people. It's almost like, well, let me try to line you up a little bit better so you meet my expectations. And, of course, in doing that, I'm still not dealing with the reality of the other. The fourth stage is whenever that reality really wears through, whether it's the career or the institution or the, the relationship, then, then there's often a collapse of the projection and it falls back into our unconscious. And if it remains unconscious, we literally don't know what's happened. We, we've been in a delusional state for a certain length of time and didn't know what happened. But often what, what we uh, do to explain that to ourselves is we blame the other. For example, you let me down or you're not the person I thought you were. And so that we miss the opportunity to realize, you know, what did I put out on you? What was I expecting of you? What does that say about me? And the fifth stage, if it occurs, is where one makes that conscious. And one begins then to, to realize, uh, oh, that, that's perhaps my neediness I put out on the other or those infantile parts of me that I'm not being accountable for and, and I've asked you to take care of for me, which people do in relationships all the time. Now, again, that, that's a real challenge to that person to own those things because if, if I don't, then again, I'll just renew the projection in another direction and go through the same cycle again. Now, we are constantly projecting on the world, projecting upon others because that's how we try to make a strange world, which is forever new, uh, familiar in some way. And it's one of the ways we, we try to cope with the world. There's a positive part of it where we, in a sense, um, you know, are, are able to build on our experiences in certain areas, but in other areas it leads to repetitions. And so one of the things that is very instructive in looking at relationships is to see what, where are the patterns, where are the repetitions, particularly the disturbing ones, and to, to realize I'm the only common person, I mean, I'm the only person common to each of those experiences. So it's probably coming from me, it's not just the other. And then the, the other term, transference, means when we project onto a situation or to a, to a person, we will transfer to them often the dynamics that attended that particular issue or agenda in our psychological history so that a person might be very uh, dependent in a relationship rather than holding one's own because one's projected something of archaic uh, uh, parental material upon them. Or, or one might be caught in compulsive uh, behaviors or, or be caught 
in power issues and trying to control the other. Um, so we, in other words, as creatures of history, we, we will tend to transfer to this present moment our agendas and, and uh, mechanisms from the past, which is, again, what leads to repetition. And, and one of the sure signs of the presence of these invisible specters or hauntings that I've talked about is the presence of patterns in our lives, particularly the patterns that we can identify as uh, self-injurious or destructive to others, and, and to say, all right, what, where they're coming from is some core issue in me that has been insufficiently uh, addressed, and as such, it still has a certain autonomy in my life and is, is playing out. So in every relationship, to some degree, there is projection and transference, meaning uh, the other is wholly other, a stranger, and unknown, but I project onto them um, my, my psychological history. And with that, the behaviors, strategies, agendas, and expectations of that past, which produces the, the, the transference. And again, that's what leads to, to our patterns. So one of the things we try to do in, in psychoanalysis is to start with these patterns and work backwards to try to get at what are the, some of those core ideas, messages, complexes, that have such an autonomy in my life, where they come from, and how can I begin, um, you know, recognizing them while they're doing their uh, their their business, and um, maybe recover sooner, or maybe even rest uh, some control away from what otherwise would be an autonomous service to the past. Well, can we talk about ghost busting now? So, <laughs> yeah. I was thinking of the phrase "skeletons in the closet." That's what it reminds me of. Right. Well, I'm thinking about how daunting it is once you sink into these swamplands of the soul, I think is one of the ways you call it, and how you begin illuminating these patterns and repetitions and find out that, you know, we're a sum of our past, you know, the unlived lives of our parents and all these different complexes and things. Can you offer hope for those of us who begin making conscious the darkness? Well, of course. If if I weren't uh, capable of hope uh, and hadn't seen it happen many times, I, I, I would not be able to be a psychotherapist, that's for sure. Um, I, I have to say that the powers of early conditioning, the powers of primal messages are very formidable, and we err to underestimate them. But on the other hand, um, the human being is capable of uh, growth, and there's something in us that wishes that growth. Um, Jung's concept for that was the self with a capital S, not to be confused with the ego. It has nothing to do with selfish. It, it has to do with the, the, the true identity of that person that is seeking its expression in the world. And it expresses itself through our bodies as our cells divide and grow and differentiate. And we become very complex beings through our emotional life, through our cognitive life, and through our, our, our spiritual life as well. And so there's, there is an energy in service to life, or else this species would not be still uh, clinging to this spinning planet. And, and so, in, in a sense, what we see is the conflict of energies, the uh, internalized messages that are often prohibitive or, or uh, life-denying, and the internal energy that is seeking to express itself. And... To attend to that uh, conversation and that dialogue between these worlds and um, to, to recognize that 
in the face of powerful messages, we're going to have to fight a battle that might last our entire lifetime. And you would say, well, I'd like to solve this this afternoon. Well, I'm sorry it doesn't work that way. Um, and, and you can say, well, it just takes too much effort. Well, fine, in which case you remain a prisoner uh, in, in, to the past. You, re, you, you live your life in that haunted house, so to speak. And, and so what we, we do is we begin to recognize over time the presence of certain kinds of energies, thoughts, patterns, and, and catch them earlier and, and reduce their damage. And, and in time, we sort of outgrow it. You know, if you put a nail in a sapling, it can dominate that, that infant tree, as it were. But if you see the tree years later, it's grown up all around that, and it's absorbed that. And so we can oh. often absorb these messages into our systems, and, and we develop a resilience and a range of choices and capacities that were not present in, in childhood. And so in this way, we, we can outgrow the noxious influence of, of some of those negative messages in our lives, but we're never absent them. And, and that's why people could say 70 years later, 80 years later, you know, I thought I got beyond that, but it still hits me once in a while. And, and that's true, because nothing that's ever happened is wholly dead in us. It, it's still there, and it's still active to some degree. And when triggered, uh, for whatever reason, it does have the power to come up and, and um, shut us down. I mean, that's the old Hamlet problem again, you know, mm. where um, something from within uh, leaps up and takes us out of this moment and out of our present capacities and into the past. And I, and I want to emphasize, we're not talking here about the past as past. We're talking about it as present. All of our conversation is really focused on the present. Uh, we, we don't lie on a couch and... Um, you know, just complain about the past. That's just a cliche. It's really about how is my life going today? You know, what are the interferences? What are the blockages? Can't, how can I get at them? And so it's extremely present-oriented, and for that reason, investing in the future, which is always a hopeful future. Wow. Well, you know what? That was 42 minutes. So thank you for sharing it with us. Well, you're most welcome. Pleased to be with you. Wonderful. You've been listening to James Hollis on SyncBook Radio, a production of thesyncbook.com. More information about the work of Dr. Hollis can be found at jameshollis.net. For more information about the SyncBook, our guest, to check out past shows or to subscribe to the podcast via iTunes, please be sure and visit our website at 42minutes.com. If you'd like to support the show, we urge you to become a donor. You'll find the donation links under each episode on the website. Thanks so much. And in, the, and, and in the vein of Ghostbusters, I'll end off by saying, when someone asks if you're a god, you say yes.
I think you better come. 